Welcome back, warriors. Quainine Deloise Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native people from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their experiences on the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And today, this is the podcast for me, because I have been waiting for this interview forever. I am probably her number one fan. This woman is a warrior in heart and spirit and everything she does. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Warrior Life Podcast. Today, we have a guest that I have always wanted to have on this podcast because she is literally, in fact, and in every way and every sense that you can possibly imagine, a warrior at heart. And warriors have big hearts. Contrary to common misconceptions, warriors are about having big hearts. They care very, very deeply about our people, all living things around them, and Mother Earth. And they take actions to protect them. And boy, do we need warriors right now. Mother Earth is in a struggle with all of the human activity that is contributing to poverty, inequality, the extinction of plants and animals, and most urgently, climate change. And the person that I have on here today, like I said, she, I'm just her number one fan in a good way. Uh, thank you so much, Ariel, for joining us. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. As you can tell, trying not to fangirl too, too much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be interviewed. I'm also a huge fan. I also think you're an amazing, incredible warrior woman that's bringing such great stories and really showcasing the resiliency of Indigenous peoples and the strength that we have to really change the world for the better. Well, thank you. That just makes my day, of course. Now it's like a Friday. I'm just going to go around and celebrate for the rest of the day. It's like, and I love that thing about Indigenous women. You know, when we get together, it's all about lifting each other up and supporting our voices. It's not like a competition thing. And I've mm -hmm. always loved that. It doesn't matter what I'm, who I'm talking to. Indigenous women just seem to make you feel better about everything. And we need that because this struggle is hard and it's hurtful and we're dealing we're dealing with so many serious things and so much loss so the fact that indigenous women generally seem to you know be that support group i i really really appreciate that so those those words actually mean a lot and like usual i have 8000 questions for you but i'll try not to be a lawyer and interrogate you too much because this is about you but before we start how about you introduce yourself according to your cultural protocols, where you're from, you know, the way you like to. Yeah, so Iklanente, Dene Sotlaneta, Ariel Tsaekwe Hushe, Drange Betsini Hasli. 
uh, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, Hootsie Helsi. So my name is Ariel Tsaekwi Duranger, and I'm a member of the Duranger family. My grandparents were Isidore and Therese Duranger. Um, and we are Dene or Dene Slotlene people from Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta. Um, and I currently reside in Amiskwichiwiskayagon, also known as Edmonton in Treaty 6 territory. And I'm a mother of two. I also have two dogs and two birds. Um, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. Well, founder and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. That's awesome. I love it when people, you know, usually people say, you know, I have kids or have a partner or whatever, but that you included your animals because I have three dogs too. And I just love my puppies. So good on you for, for also including them in, in your life. And you, are you in Alberta today? In yeah, I'm in Edmonton. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, for those people who, you know, maybe they're from some of our Native American brothers and sisters in the South or Indigenous peeps from across the world, anyone who might not know about uh, Athabasca, Chippewan First Nation, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where it's located and how awesome your community is. Yeah, so Athabasca Chippewan First Nation is a really unique nation. I mean, I think everyone who comes from a nation probably wants to say that about where they're from, but I'm going to say that about mine because I love my community and who we are. Uh, we're signatories to Treaty Number no. 8, which is located, it's actually the largest treaty territory in so-called Canada, uh, and it spans across Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, Northwest Territories, and a little bit of the Yukon. Um, and we are primarily Dene, um, but we also have relatives that are Cree and also relatives that are also Métis that exist within our traditional territories. And so we are Dene, our Dene Sotlane people. Um, and my community, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, resides or is housed or located at uh, on the lake on Lake Athabasca, uh, where treaty was signed in the community of Fort Chippewan in 1899. And so our community is considered an Arctic community where I can't remember Arctic class A, so one of the first, so subarctic or Arctic communities, and it's a remote fly-in community. So we don't have a, a road, we rely on winter roads. Um, and our community is really just, um, you know, we're, we're a community that has maintained our connections to our culture, our language, our traditional food practices and really we have been a massive voice in promoting the sovereignty and self-determination of, of our communities and Dene people. Oh that's awesome because I feel that everyone's home community and their culture really informs you know your actions going forward. Clearly it's like the love of your community and culture and family and people that must be part of inspiring what you do. Well, what in fact drew you to advocacy? I mean, what did you want to be when you were a little girl? Did you know, did you want to be a, a fire person, a police officer, or were you, did you know you were going to champion the climate? I mean, I don't know that I knew I was going to champion the climate. I think, I think for me, people ask all the time, like, how did you get involved in, in environmental advocacy uh, and Indigenous rights movements? So I think first off, understanding my community and particularly my family. So, um, you know, there's a lot of jokes. So we have a French last name, Duranger, and in French, it means to disturb. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, that's so good. <laughs> We come by it honestly. I don't know, um, but you know, we were we were given that name by the French missionaries, and our traditional uh, last name prior to colonization, and our families 
our family name was actually Deskelne, and that means river keeper. Um, and so our people have a deep connection to our place and where we come from. I mean, this is deeply ingrained in every family that comes from my community. You know, our traditional name, like even Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, it's 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 a colonial name. Our traditional name is actually Kaital Dene Sotlene, which means people of the willow uh, and people of the land. And so this is a direct reference and the willow is the Athabasca Delta where the willows grow on the shores of the river system. And so our community has this deep relationship and I was taught this from a very young age. My value systems and the way in which I was raised form how I ended up doing what I'm doing. So I was always taught to respect the land, respect our culture, respect our identities, respect our elders, and that we live in relationship with the land and with all of our relatives that live on the land. And so this, like, you know, even my, we, my grandparents, oh my, my parents actually lived in the bush. Um, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to live in the bush. Uh, my sister was born and raised out there. And when my mom was pregnant with me, um, we were living in Northern Saskatchewan where my family's trap line was. Um, and it was scheduled for uranium mining and exploration. Uh, in the 70s and so when my mom was nine months pregnant with me my family was forcibly removed from our traditional territory by armed security of a company called el dorado uh, that was doing mining extraction and so my family moved down south to regina and uh, my parents still continued to advocate. They were part of the non-nuclear or the, the nuclear non-proliferation movement of the 70s and into the 80s to stop uranium mining. Um, and that was all, they were utilizing the platform of indigenous rights, our relationships, who we are, how our land was illegally appropriated from our, our communities and from our peoples and the, the breaches of treaty that also existed to allow these things to happen. And so I grew up with that. I grew up with like protests and, uh, you know, occupations of Indian Affairs offices. And my, my mom has family in South Dakota. So I spent a lot of time in the Black Hills as part of the Black Hills and the Lakota movements down south. Um, and my parents actually met via the American Indian Movement. So to give you a picture, that's what I grew up with. I make a joke. I make a joke that for me, arts and crafts, when I was growing up, was making placard signs and coming up with chants <laughs> for protests and marches. Um, so I come by it honestly, both by my last name, to disturb, and by the way my parents raised me. Um, but I think at heart, I, I'm an artist. Um, I, I draw, I paint, I write. And these are things that, that deeply are, are really actually embraced within these, these movements and spaces. And that it's not just about you know being loud it's about nurturing the the beauty of our communities yeah. my dad was a storyteller and a writer and an artist mm. and he utilized those skills and talents as part of the ways in which he told the stories of our people and the strength of our people um, and my own name which is Dene Ariltsekwi uh, means a thunder woman in my language and my mm. uncle who who passed um, Pat uh, Duranger um, he was a medicine person and well-respected Patrick Duranger. And he, we had lots of conversations and over the years, in the past like 15 years, one of the things he said to me that's always like really sat, sat with me is that your name, he said, your name, I think it was given to you for a reason. Um, because when you think about thunder and lightning, 
they're kind of two separate things, but they're also the same. And we'll see lightning. You can see lightning strike. You can see the light up the sky, but it's in a place and it's static. And thunder rolls to great distances to share the message of that lightning strike. And that your job, your role, not job, but your role in our community and in, for our people is to be the thunder for our people, to share our story, to share what's happening beyond the edges and the boundaries of our territories and where we come from. And so I feel like that's, that's really, I, I embody that. That's what I do. Okay, let's see. Thunder. Yeah, you got that. American Indian movement, forced relocations, you know, parents in the 70s, advocates. Like, how could you not be who you are? It's almost like, here's a recipe for a really awesome aerial in the future. You put all those things in and here's what we get. A power woman who is really leading the way on all of this stuff. And you just seem to like come by it naturally. It seems like it's like literally infused in who you are. I would say that that I, I feel that way. Like I feel like I don't, like I feel as though I'm being guided more by by my ancestors than I than I am really by something that's that's uh, sort of premeditated. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I really try to like be guided by what is asked of me. Um, and so my work into the foray of really like when I really sort of came out into this work was was when I joined my community as the spokesperson for challenging the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. Um, and prior to that, I'd been working with the Federation of Sovereign, now Sovereign, then Saskatchewan yeah. Indian Nations, and I and I worked on land claims. So I was I was a treaty land entitlement and specific land claims researcher that focused on oral history with communities. And uh, I learned so much in that time, that six and a half years that I worked there, including that there's there are thousands, thousands and thousands of breaches of treaty that are really driven by this desire to extract resources from our lands and territories and that co colonial governments will essentially stop at nothing to do that and in my own experience what i found is relating to how i saw oil and gas development in my own community i started to get really curious in that time frame as like well what's happening for land claims in my own nation in my own community because i was living in saskatchewan at the time and um, what was really, really interesting is that as I started to reach out and talk to some more and more of my cousins and uncles and aunts, I realized that the, the, the expansion of the tar sands had like more than quadrupled from when I was a child. And my cousin calls me one day and I was in Ottawa um, and I was working on this fellowship with the Wallace Global Foundation. And she called me and she said, they're killing us. They're killing us. They're poisoning our river. They're poisoning our animals. Our people are getting sick. Our people are getting die are, are dying. I we need your help. And she was crying and she's like, you need to come home. And I that day was forever changed me. Um, I I couldn't do anything but like think about what could I do to help my community and help my people from experiencing this direct result of, of uh, colonial genocide. 
in our territories. And I worked with my community, with the newly elected leadership um, to really think about like what we could do to really raise the profile of our community and drive a campaign forward. And I had no experience campaigning other than like being <laughs> alongside in movement spaces with my mom my whole life. And uh, I was studying political economy. <laughs> like, I was not outside of my foray. Um, and wow. So that with all of these experiences, that one thing that I knew is that it was not my place to speak for others, but to step into roles when you're asked. And I stepped into that role and I continue to hold the accountability to my community and my people mm -hmm. at the heart of everything that I do. Well, it's just so phenomenal when you when you think about it, because there's you know, there's so many challenges. Never mind. Genocide continues, you know, never mind racism and misogyny and violence. Like all of those things are like this minefield that just to survive, you have to kind of navigate that minefield. But then to also be able to find the time and the effort and the energy and the purpose to also say, well, while all that's going on, we still have to be fighting for our futures. We still have to protect what we have is left. And it always amazes me how much you do. And, and for you to say, you know, you didn't have any campaign experience. I'm thinking, wow, just you growing up from a baby into an adult, like that is in effect, you know, all of your experience. And and so what, what were some of the challenges? I mean, I know you worked on the Tar Sands campaign what were some of the challenges for that? Because I know in society, if ever I talk about, you know, oil sands, tar sands, or pipelines, that's when I get the biggest amount of pushback. They don't care about some of the other issues, but boy, that's a hot topic. You know, I think this is really a, an interesting topic because it's challenging. And, and as someone who studied political economy, I kind of had a little bit of an understanding of how the colonial structures viewed this. Um, but I'm going to say for myself, as someone who grew up literally on the land, like my parents made sure to take us and we spent almost every summer in the bush, uh, you know, collecting water, hunting, cooking over fires, all of those things. Um, and like really like learning who we were as Dene people and as Dene people, like if you take the word Dene <laughs> and you break it down the root word, it actually means to flow from the land. Um, and so really embracing and embedding that in our identities. I struggled as a young adult to 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 find my place in society because I, it didn't fit the values and the and the ways in which I was raised were counter or in opposition to um, colonial ideologies of like man's dominion over nature, uh, the accumulation of wealth, which is like, you know, our cultures take only what you need <laughs> and notoriety and all of these sort of in hyper individual sort of uh, ideologies and value systems. And they, and they didn't line up. They didn't line up. Political economic systems when I was studying political economy didn't line up. And for me, I had a I had a moment when I was uh, studying where I was just like they commodify everything. They put a dollar mm -hmm. amount on everything, and I had experienced this even working on land claims. And I'm just like it's so perverted. It's so counterintuitive to the values of our communities. And then secondarily to that, as I was studying, I was also like, oh my god, they're valuing humanity based on our accumulation of knowledge through a Western academic system. And 
how does that work when I know that there are these incredible knowledge holders in our communities, these elders that I interviewed during my time doing during land claims, they're the ones that literally broke the cases for us to understand the real history of what happened. And those systems were completely excluded from these structures. Um, and it kind of was like this moment where I had this reckoning of like, this isn't just about stopping the tar sands. This isn't just about my community. This is about awakening society to the histories and the real lived experiences and the knowledge systems that our communities have and house and have housed for millennia that are critical to finding the solutions, not just to a land claim, mm -hmm. but to the broader societal uh, challenges that we're facing, largely climate change. And, and so for me, like I, I really struggled with like how to bring those two together. And when I started working in the environmental movement, particularly, I'm gonna tell you, it wasn't easy. Um, it was not an easy place to, to work in. It, you sort of modern day environmental movements were born out of middle-class white privilege mm -hmm. where they saw the land as something to protect out there. I mean, the early iterations of the conservation movement <laughs> resulted in the, the, the removal of indigenous peoples from their traditional territories. And, and, you know, we're seeing how like now there's this like, Oh, well, we, we honor and respect indigenous peoples, but they're still, to this day, there's still this ideology that indigenous peoples are only valuable to these movement spaces if we are leading with our trauma. If we are leading with the trauma of our communities as opposed to the strengths of our knowledge systems, of our relationships, of our historical governance and the ways in which we were raised. And we are instead focusing on how our communities are victims. And I saw this in the work I did with the tar sands. And one of the things that I was so frustrating in my work on the tar sands campaign is at one point we were trying to fight like shell oil and big companies with my nation and you know governments and society that's like, we need oil and gas. <laughs> and these environmental groups being like, come on, we need you to create the impact to get people motivated to, to participate in this campaign because look at you're all dying. And my chief said, if you care about us dying and you really want us to stop from dying, then why aren't you helping us with our suicide prevention program? Why yeah. are you not rebuilding our school that is literally filled with mold? Mm -hmm. And why are you not helping with all of these other things? Like you only wanna, you only want us to lead with our trauma. And I, I realized in that moment that there was a real problem in the institutionalization of the way white supremacy is still prevalent within the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. And that led me to the creation of Indigenous Climate Action. Well, I mean, that alone, there's so much that you could unpack from that, but it's like all of our experiences all rolled up into a perfect summary because, you know, think about beyond the environmental movement, if it's a human rights movement or an anti-poverty movement or, you know, women's movement, like they only want one particular thing from us that helps push the movement. And I support all movements, you know, like, and I'm sure you do too. All, anything that has to do with social justice, human rights and protecting the planet, like I'm all for that. But it's, mm -hmm. to, it's to also realize that if we're going to have like a really good relationship going forward with all these movements, 
kind of have to look at, you know, be careful you're not unknowingly exploiting indigenous peoples and the things that they're that they're going through. And then you don't just drop them when it's good. Okay, I got this legislative amendment. Great. Now let's move on to something else. And we don't need you. You know, it's like, hey, what about the ongoing relationship? Like, are you going to give that back on, on an issue that's totally unrelated? You know, maybe it's about over incarceration. Maybe we want to get our women and kids out of prison. Are you going to work on that too? Or does that not really compatible with what you're talking about? So I just, I love that you, you do that, that you actually confront it because some people might say, don't make waves. It's much easier <laughs> if you just, everybody plays nice or what if they don't support you? You know, like you must have faced some, a little bit of that pushback. Cause I know I do all the time, just be nicer, smile more. Just don't worry about the stuff that's not working. I think that there is a history that is a part of colonialism that is internalized even in our own people to be nice, to play the nice Indian, to be that person that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable because you don't want to be the loud brown woman in the room. Um, and I'm just like, F that shit. Like, sorry, I don't know if I can swear, but like, <laughs> F that. Like, like, it's not... As, as as warriors, as this podcast is, our job was not to make people feel comfortable. No. It was to, it's to confront the issues head on. And it was also not driven by hate. It is driven by the love for our community and our survival. And so there are problems. Like there are sometimes I think we see this warrior culture as being like angry and coming out and yeah. smashing the systems. But at the same time, like the reality is, is like that anger, how do we hold that anger and hold it and turn it into something good? Yeah. How do we, like my, my uncle, my, my deceased uncle Pat, he often talked about how we can't be angry all the time, but we have to take that anger and we have to use it. We have to help it drive our community for something better. And so I, you know, I do say it as it is all the time because I don't know how to do it any other way. Yeah. And I have made people uncomfortable and when, but I also don't shy from their discomfort and I don't shame them. And yeah. I will come up to someone who's angry at me and they'll just be like, you're not listening to me. And I'm like, I'm right here. I am listening to you. And I think that the reality is, is you have your own internalized processes that mm -hmm. you need to unpack. We talk about decolonization all the time as indigenous peoples right now, but decolonization does not just belong to us. It no. belongs to the society that created colonial constructs as well. And that we all have to be willing to deconstruct those systems, to confront those shadows that exist within that work and to be willing to unpack it all and then to build something new. And yeah. that is the reality is building something new requires pain. I often equate this to, to as someone who's birthed two children, um, <laughs> childbirth. Yeah. We, we, you don't have a baby. Like no one thinks I'm going to go have a baby and it's going to be easy. I'm just going to like create new life. And suddenly yep, it'll there be you here. go. It requires nine months of nurturing and growing and taking care of oneself, eating the right foods, you know, ensuring that your body is respected. And then childbirth itself, ushering new life into the world requires pain. Mm -hmm. It requires your body to move and stretch in ways that it's never done before. It requires us to accept that pain, 
to accept these movements and that struggle as critical to bringing new life into the world. But too many people in movement spaces shy away from the discomfort and the pain that comes with being confronted with having to move and contort in ways that we've never done before. So I think it's really critical that we, we confront those things, that we are okay with someone pushing back on us. Like, hell man, I, people, people push back <laughs> on me all the time. And I'm just like, okay, let me hear you. You, you don't like the fact that I'm challenging the tar sands. I had a worker come yell in my face one time. Mm. He's like, you are trying to take away my job. And I'm like, am I really trying to take away your job though? And he's like, yes, you're trying to shut down the industry. And I was like, okay, but I'm not trying to take away your job. I'm trying to stop a, an industry that is destroying the environment locally, yeah. destroying the ability for communities to survive locally, and is contributing to the global climate crisis. I'm like, when I'm trying to stop this industry, I don't want it to not be replaced with anything. There needs to be just yeah. transition strategies. Yeah. There needs to be a job for you. I want there to be a job for you. What I'm really disappointed in is that this is the only thing you think you can do. Because society has made, me, made you believe that this is the only job that's going to let you survive. There is something wrong with society when it says that this is the only place you can work. Don't you want options? Don't you want to be able to enjoy a future and have future like a, for your own children? I'm like, I'm not here to take away your job. I'm here to try to create a space for you to have more options than just this one place. And he was like, I came here all the way from the East Coast. And I was like, do you have family there? And he's like, yes, I had to leave my family behind. I was like, don't you wish society didn't require you to do that? Yes. And he was like, yes. And I'm like, we're not here to take away jobs. We're here to try to usher in a future that doesn't require you to leave your family, that isn't built on the destruction of the earth. And if you want to be a part of that, come join us and demand a better option for you to have employment and to be able to enjoy your family. That person is still my friend to this day. See, and that's and that's the difference, because had you shied away from having a hard conversation, then he wouldn't even have had another perspective to consider. You know what I mean? And, and that's, and obviously we're not going to change everybody's minds. There are people who will be like, you know, just super racist or misogynist or haters or just closed minded. That's a reality. But for the revolution, you don't need everybody. You need core people. And I just believe, truly believe the kind of the way you embrace it and not in a, oh, you're a jerk because you work in the oil industry. It's like, hey, you know, you're being screwed around too. And here's how everything you just said. And I think everybody in these industries, whether they're manufacturing arms, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, when you challenge Canada for manufacturing arms, it's like, oh, but jobs. And I'm like, since when do jobs trump human rights? What about, have you taken the time to create a different job? Maybe some more doctors and nurses to help with the healthcare system. You know, maybe some people to, to, to come up with other social supports for society. And I just love that you don't shy away from it. And I, and I have to say, Ariel, I don't think I've ever heard this struggle ever characterized in the context of childbirth. The, both the pain and the beauty of it, like the responsibility we have to nurture baby, but it's has to ha has to come with pain. But then out of that pain comes something so beautiful and and the and the 
possibilities are endless for a future. And I just love the way that you explained that. Like that's that's beautiful. And it's so true because if if we didn't have people like you and we just left it to society, well, native people, um, they're not allowed to be poor because then it's just, you're just lazy and pull up your socks, but you're not allowed to be strong and powerful because then you're just forgetting about your people. Like there's nowhere for us to fit in. We can't be successful. We can't be unsuccessful. We can't be in society. We can't be out of society. It's like, there's no place for us except we have to make that place. And that's exactly what you're doing. And I just, my gosh, I'm so inspired by you just talking to you today. But I think the the childbirth, women get that. Women get, you know, the pain of childbirth. And I think about, you know, how you, just that conversation you had with that, you know, oil worker. I think about all the times oil workers have tried to confront me and say, well, you're just a hypocrite because you had to drive in a vehicle. And I'm like, yeah. We are trapped in a system that wasn't created by us, that wouldn't give us any options, that tried to trash electric vehicles for decades and decades so they'd never be on the market or like all of the different kinds of options or required us to travel to make a living. And it's like, yeah, I will admit we are trapped in this system, but we're trying to get out of this system and dismantle that system. So it's more just. And I just think all of the arguments they use, I have yet to see one that hold water because there's more to life than the job that you think you have to have or, mm -hmm. you know, or this system that we're trapped in because we're literally all victims of that system. It's only a few people that benefit from that. And even there, what they consider to be benefits isn't a benefit. So I just, I love it. I love it. And I love that you speak with the passion of it too. And without the shaming, because we're literally all trapped in this and, and it's a hard go, especially when you see, you know, we're fighting against pipelines or the tar sands, but then there are also first nations that are working in it because <laughs> of this lack of choice that we all face or, you know, yeah. hor horrific poverty. You force people into no options. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't think people really understand that nuance that when a government or an extractive industry comes to you and says, hey, it's being built anyway, we're either going to pave over your whole res or you're going to be, you know, play ball. And I and I don't know, like, how do you address that on an ongoing basis that people want to make us good Indians or bad Indians? We either play ball or we don't play ball. Like, it's always a binary that doesn't fit the situation. Like, Genocide is not like we have options. <laughs> you know, okay, so this is a really interesting point that I, I've really been kind of like sitting within. So, I, you know, I've come from Treaty 8 territory. Um, I, I'm proud to be from Treaty 8 territory. Mm -hmm. But let's be real. There's this perpetuation by the federal governments and colonial governments and even some of our own people that yeah. these treaties were so Pro prolific and necessary to like live here and we all have this peace and friendship and agreements to share the land and the, the image of the of the, of the, yeah, you yeah. Know, the the Indians shaking the pilgrim's <laughs> hand you know and and I know that's a part of our history but we 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 celebrate it and we are not actually looking at a, a deeper understanding because and this relates to where we are with oil and gas and I'll get to it in a second because the very foundations of so-called Canada are built under treaty making, which is an agreement. 
And we talk about it like how we're better than the United States, which had the American Indian Wars. But the reality is, is that we don't talk about how the fact that Canada was experiencing colonization for hundreds of years prior to the signing of treaty, that our people were put into a position like Big Bear left the treaty negotiations because he said, we are not given a choice. We are told we have to sign these treaties. We were put in a position under duress, under the threat of poverty, starvation, um, violence on our lands, violence on our bodies, violence on our women. It was sign the treaty or don't get anything at all. And we are now in 2022, entering into 2023, and that same narrative strategy is put onto our communities when it comes to extractive resources, whether it's the oil and gas in the tar sands in Alberta, or forestry in uh, Western uh, Canada, or you know minerals and and other sort of precious metals in in the in the north, <laughs> or mega hydro development to power that are largely benefiting settler white society. We are still put in a case of we are under duress and threat of poverty, threat of violence on our land that we won't get a say in. Um, all of these things, that story continues. Colonization isn't something that happened. It's an ongoing process by which colonial governments benefit from this narrative that treaties were signed and therefore we have a really great agreement and we're working towards sharing the land. We've been dispossessed of our abilities to not only have access and say over our land, but we've been dispossessed of being able to advance our cultures, our governance, our relationships, conservation, hydrology, you know, biology into these systems to inform best practices. And the work that I've been doing at the international and the national level is how do we move away from this uh, paternalistic relationship that they know what's best for us and that we move to advance the, the, the rematriation of indigenous knowledge systems into guiding policy, into guiding the way in which we govern and relate and manage our lands and territories to the forefront. My own community, we sign deals with industry all the time. Does that mean I need to sh sit there and like shit all over my leadership? No, because the reality is, is the system was set up for them to have no other choice but to do this. Prior to my nation signing agreements, my nation had one of the worst education systems. We were dealing with a suicide crisis. We were dealing with an addictions crisis. We were dealing with an employment crisis. We've signed industry, and I'm not saying that they are saviors, they're not, but I'm, I'm showing you just how insidious the system has been created to, to tell us, you don't have any other choice. This is what, this is, it's this or nothing. It's this or death, essentially. Now we have a great school. Now we have a budding education, cultural programs. We have, you know, jobs outside of the industry, which is something we asked for, for support from the environmental movement, which they didn't give. And so we have to look at where are the responsibilities, not just of the devolution of fiduciary responsibility to, to, to live up to the treaty agreements, but society as a whole needs to understand that our communities need to be supported and brought to the forefront and that our knowledge systems and our ways of being hold value in driving forward a future that everyone benefits from. And we have to undo this, this, this system of putting us into duress. Like even when we talk about free, prior and informed consent, we get caught up all the time. Did you get, did, did they consent to it? And companies and governments applaud, they agreed to it, they agreed to it. 
but we're not actually talking about the substantive things that need to happen before consent is obtained. Was it free of coercion, intimidation, manipulation, and bribery? Did they have all the best available information in a timeline long enough for them to digest, process, and bring forward their own information and systems into it to develop a, a position of consent? If we are just saying, did they say yes or no, we are bypassing the critical components to what it means for us to participate in these systems. You can't ask someone in the 11th hour when they're dealing with like people literally standing on a cliff's edge, yes or no, do you want to fall over this edge or do you want us to save you? That is not consent. It's manufactured consent that benefits that white society, white society, white settler society and colonialism and capitalism continues to benefit from. And it continues to rob agency from our communities. Literally in every single way, that's the case. You think about, you know, genocide. What was the purpose of all of these genocidal laws, policies and practices? It was to get rid of us you know, physically or culturally, legally forced assimilation because they wanted our lands and resources. They wanted power over this territory. So everything is by design. Nothing is unintentional. So if you starve us into submission, is the yes really a yes? No, of course it's not. If you have a gun to your head, quite literally, is a yes a yes? No, of, co of course it's not. And, you know, I've heard leaders who've signed those agreements say, I signed it. That's not consent. It's not a yes when we were told it's happening anyway. Okay. You know, or when the United Nations did that study on treaties, you know, they went around the world and looked at all these agreements between indigenous peoples and these European colonizers and said, did, were we really of the mind that we were just going to give up everything? No, we weren't. Look at all of the duress that was on us. And even if you go by colonizer laws, either at the time or now. None of this is consent. It's If you have undue duress, if you have all of that political manipulation you're talking about, the threat of, well, you know, here comes the RCMP or here comes the military or the extractive industry or any of these things, none of it is a yes. None of it is a yes and, or, you know, real form of consent. And it would, in fact, in law, vitiate consent. So undo the yep. consent. But that never applies to us. It's kind of like we have the right to say yes, but we never have the right to say no or, or you know what, not right now or give us time to think about it or, you know, maybe with some conditions down the road. There is no consent for us. It's yes. And that's the only option. And, and if we don't say yes, we are portrayed as the bad Indians. I mean, they even had stickers for that under the Harper era. Remember, like the bad Indians had like blue stickers. Or something. I can't even remember. But Ariel, is this is this what drives you? Because it seems to me that you've done more than just educate. You know, there's a whole industry around education and awareness. And, and I appreciate all the people engaged in awareness. But you can be aware and know lots of things, but if there's no action attached to it, then what good is the awareness? So like, mm -hmm. have you always known that there's always got to be a call to action? There's always got to be movement in addition to just the public education. Absolutely. I think that, that I would probably get that from my parents and being a part of like, you know, 
the the movements of the 70s 80s and 90s um you know th that it's not enough to sort of letter write and campaign and learn everything i mean even some of the most prolif prolific indigenous leaders they disrupted it's about disrupting space it's about showing up like our we, we say the things like our existence is resistance but what does that actually mean it's not just about being born is a, is a form of resistance, but it's, it's being born and being willing to step into yourself and take up space in a colonial structure. If we don't show up and we don't disrupt and we don't demand uh, the change, then the governments and the colonial systems, they play the narrative game. They, they're interested in the long game when it comes to the narrative of indigenous peoples. And we have to constantly step in to disrupt that. We don't want like I'm so tired of like indigenizing spaces and you know land acknowledgments because it, we're not decolonizing. All we're doing is peppering indigenous peoples on things and being like, oh look, we're we're good now. We're good now. We're good. We have like we have eight indigenous peoples. We have you know we have like an indigenous elder that talks to us every now and then. But without substantive access to power and for us to create our own structures moving forward, um, that doesn't change anything. And the only way to demand that change is to disrupt. So in the work that we do, and, and, I, and I employed this even with my own community, is we call it inside-outside strategies. And one is that you need people. We need the academics and the lawyers and the politicians to be holding that space inside. We need it. We need those people that are advancing you know, policy and doing all of this stuff. Um, but that stuff will continue to be pushed to the side, discredited, devalued in those systems if there is not public pressure from the outside and there's not demands. And so we need that actionable uh, relationality. And it also what it is so beautiful about it at the same time is that it it values the different skill sets that we hold yes. this community. Not everyone wants to get a Western education. Some of us need to have platforms to share our knowledge, to share mm -hmm. our passion, to share our arts, like art and activism um, and the ability to to really share and and uplift the diversity of the ways in which knowledge and uh, the sharing of our systems can be created that isn't welcome in those like you know little boxes yep. of colonial systems is so critical because it does two things it helps create that narrative to disrupt so those groups can't continue to advance status quo but it also shows us um, gives us a glimpse into what alternatives can be what can it look like what does disruption get in and the end of a colonial structure look like what is it replaced by and i think we're still in the process of figuring that out yeah. and i think that there's a lot of lessons because i think colonial systems they're driven by you know election cycles and timelines we got to get this done now urgency but as someone who grew up with culture and ceremony there's one thing you learn about being in ceremony is you cannot have urgency and a timeline you know creator will share when creator shares the messages will be shared the elders will go as long as they need to to share the the stories and you will always learn something and things mm -hmm. will always come to the surface that need to it's this trust and humility and in understanding that our place isn't to always lead and drive things at the speed of urgency and crisis but yeah. to be driven by what's necessary for our communities. And I think that we are still in that process of trying to mm -hmm. reimagine and rebuild what's gonna replace that. But these inside outside strategies 
show us the cracks inside from the outside. And then those on the inside can start to address them and tweak them while we simultaneously build what, yes. what needs to be put inside. And to row wampum, I'm going to, I'm going to say it like, I'm not all about tearing down the entire system and throwing it out the door. Um, Cause we like, we're speaking English. We're using the internet. We, we benefit from some of the advancements of Western society. And we have to understand that like that two role wampum teachings is that we might not be in the same canoe, but we're moving down the same river together. And that there, the, the, the reimagination of tomorrow is not that we have supremacy over. We're not, I'm not, at least I'm not, I'm not mm. interested in supremacy. I'm not yeah. interested in replacing white supremacy with indigenous supremacy or any yeah. kind of yeah, supremacy. Yeah. But how do we bring back the collective well-being reestablishing those deep relationships not just with each other as the humans but that collective well-being of who we are as Dene our yes. people of the land um, how do we bring back that spirit into driving policy how do we bring back that spirit into all of that and it requires much more than the cognitive thinking of writing policy on paper and doing mm -hmm. traditional campaigning within colonial structures it requires us to embrace and expand what's necessary for those changes to occur. Gosh, it's even like decolonizing our own advocacy. You know, the, the way we look at ourselves, the way we do our movements and stuff, because that's that's the evil. I think it's the most insidious evil of colonization and hundreds of years of it is sometimes you don't even know what's in your head that you need to get out. You know, it. you can easily fall back to, well, I'm right and they're wrong when you know in in fact it it's okay to disagree we you and i can disagree on i don't know whatever it is but we can still work together on making sure that our children are protected like it's it's not a yes or no to everything and you mm -hmm. know i think about the old days like the elders said people were allowed to people were sovereign it wasn't just the nation but the individual was sovereign to say you know what i'm a hunter or not I'm, I'm going to be an artist or not. And there was no, you know, that's good or bad or, you know, how we have to do things. But today we've just been so colonized to think the only path to success and that there's a focus on success as opposed to just being and doing our jobs and living up to our obligations. And I just, so the way you explain everything is just so important because sometimes we don't even know the extent to which the colonizers in our head. And sometimes, you know, some of our very best advocates, you know, they say, be decolonized like me. Well, I don't know if we're in our lifetime ever going to get to a space where I can say, okay, I have now gotten all of those colonization ideas out of my head because it's like a worldview. You know, you've lived it. We're in this society. And I just think let's all come together, obviously, like you're saying. And there's basics. How about we protect human life? How about we celebrate culture? How about we protect the planet to make sure everybody gets to enjoy it, including all of the living beings we see and don't see, all of the plants mm -hmm. and animals. And I just don't understand how we can't just go to the basics. Let's just disagree on politics. Like to me, politics are almost irrelevant. And let's disagree on, you know, personal things and just focus on the basics because how can you argue with the basics? right? Don't we all want to live? Don't we all want to celebrate life with our cultures and, and have a beautiful planet? I, I don't get that. And I mean, I don't think that's naive either. 
I think that's our teachings. And, it and is. Just, it's people like you that just push it forward, explain it in different ways. And I think there's just such a value in that. Honest to goodness. You've just like super energized me today, but that you're honest about let's decolonize our campaigns too. And the way we do things and, and uh, you know, we don't have to do everything the same way all the time. So I, I don't know how you, how you do this, but there's magic in the things that you say. I, I think I like, just like, I know we're kind of running up to the yep. end of all of this, but I yep. think that one of the things that we need to be reminded of is that like I work on the international level and I work at the national level and that there is no such thing as pan indigeneity. And there's, there's a real fundamental reason why this is so important. When we, right now, international governments are like talking about convention of biological diversity, saving biodiversity, as if biodiversity is something that is non-human, that it exists out there. But diversity is critical to ecosystems survival, critical. Yeah. And yet we, through white supremacist ideologies and Western ideologies and colonial ideologies, we are trying to homogenize society. Yeah. And through this lens, there's also this attempt to homogenize indigenous peoples as if we, we exist as one thing yeah. or being. We have some fundamental core values that are the same, but the diversity of our tactics and the ways in which we govern mm -hmm. and restore and relate to the land is just as critical to the survival of that ecosystem as there is diversity of the flora and fauna that exists in those spaces. Yeah. And everything that we talk about holding up the value is constantly uh, challenged because of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Capitalism stops our ability to advance these things in a real way. And what's so sick right now in our society is uh, Jack Forbes, he's a a Native American author who passed away. He wrote this book, Columbus and Other Cannibals. It's an easy read. I think it's so beautiful. But one of the things he talks about colonialism as a form of, of cannibalism um, or the wheat to goat disease. And one of the things, most eloquent things he wrote is that the epistemology of the wheat to goat disease is that sometimes in our pursuits to, to fight it, we succumb to it ourselves. And I think that our continuation of accepting the status quo that capitalism is the only way forward has proliferated our movements, our societies and our communities to the point that it is killing our planet. And there are more people, there are more people that can accept the end of the world than they can accept the end of capitalism. And that is something wow. that we seriously need to wow. confront in our own communities, in our own spaces, what does it mean to decolonize? We have to talk about capitalism within that because it is literally at the core of what's driving us into our own extinction and demise on this planet. I feel like I'm going to go away from this conversation and just think for days and days and days. I wish this podcast was eight hours long. Probably wouldn't be good for you. But honestly, that's so power that we can imagine the end of the world, but not capitalism like that. You just think about that. And I and I would ask all the listeners to think about everything that's been said. Don't react. Don't try to think of a response. Just like sit with everything that Ariel has said today. Because I know I'm going to. She's explained things in ways that I didn't even think about, especially the, the life giver. And obviously, because I have two sons, that means something to me. I know exactly the kind of pain that you're talking about, but also the love and the beauty. So 
Ariel, I, I wish I could just talk to you for another, because we didn't even talk about all of your writings, the way that you're with Indigenous Climate Action, Indigenous Peoples Forum. I mean, your CV is, is longer than uh, most people's CVs I know. So that means I think maybe you're going to have to come back and talk about some of this. But what I will do for all the listeners is post links to all the things that you do and some of your writings and your organizations and and we can maybe pump them up again in the future but I just can't, I couldn't get enough of of your wisdom and I, I you know I, th I thank you for that because I'm literally going to go away from this going huh I didn't even think about that before and sometimes we think we know a lot of stuff and you just reminding me it's like no no we just we know this much and every person we come in contact with, it just keeps adding to it. So thank you. That's a gift, Ariel. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, one of my, one of an elder from my youth once said, 90 years old, beautiful elder. She said, I know nothing. I know nothing, even at this age. And we have to have humility as we walk in this world. And this was someone that someone went to for so much knowledge. Wow. And the reality is, is we are just, small specks in these timelines and to try to advance in the this ideology that is permeated society that we need notoriety wealth you know the reality is, is these are all distractions monetary compensation is a deflection and a distraction from the ongoing violence against the land and our rights as indigenous peoples and it's just another tactic in the colonial expansion project we need to come together as people see each other as people and that is what it means to be a warrior that is what it means to stand up when you see yourself as part of a collective, as opposed to an individual, yeah. then you are being driven by something more than your own desire to fight something. You are driven by the desire to see future future generations ahead of us and the generations before us. Oh, yes, 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 as part of our communities. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the listeners for taking the time to listen and honestly take the time to think about it too and share it far and wide, like it, comment on it and do what you can. Follow the call, follow the lead of Indigenous activists when they make a call to action that's specific in their territory for their nation. Do that. Uh, don't try to lead it. Try, you know, really listen to all of these things. And like I said, I'll post links. This will also be on YouTube as well as it is on a podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Ariel. I I, um, I I want to contribute to you at some point in time. So you just let me know how I can support what, what it is that you're doing. And till next time, keep living a warrior life. Valaliag.